This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Chipotle. It's been a while, boys, since we've had uh, Chipotle in the pod room, but it never gets old, Carson. You're, you're a big Chipotle fan. Oh, I can't get enough Chipotle. I, I, I sally up to that uh, that counter and I ask for... Uh, sally up? Is that a verb? It, it to is, to it, sally? It, it is for me, yeah. To sally, okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, sally up to it that. involves Carson throwing an elbow and hitting a person in the jaw that's beside him. Yes. Right. No right. matter how small that child is. Right. Get in my belly, Chipotle. Um, yeah. but, but get up there to that counter and uh, I'm always a traditionalist when it comes to some more quick service brands uh, that we like to, uh, to to go to and I, the, the chicken tacos you cannot go wrong we always burrito <laughs> at Chipotle me too I'm I mean, burrito. You can get that's, that's the deal yeah. and it's really the meat you know that's that's part of it but you can get you can get good meat in a taco burrito anywhere it's really the toppings it's really all the add-ons at Chipotle but it's a, it's a lot I mean, it's a big burrito oh it's a football I mean it's it, it, it's yeah, yeah. that's why I say that's the standout yeah. you get the rice you get the black beans you get all the other accoutrement piled on you get it rolled up I like to stay only Carson can fit it all in his mouth at one time true true yeah. I, I'm a steak I like to steak burritos and, and it's big with my kids they, they, they love Chipotle so, so Chipotle was was the golden child for a long time right and then then they started hitting some roadblocks right they started taking out their gun and shooting themselves in the foot <laughs> at every possible turn they had their big food safety problems that seemed to linger on then they had you know even prior to that the whole thing that uh, they were GMO free when there was no way in the world that anybody could be GMO free at that point so they got a lot of egg on their face about that but it appears for a variety of reasons that they have gotten their their act together and they are back to making money and back to use your term Carson to be the darling again in fact exponential increase in uh, I think the Wall Street Journal has a chart that compares their sales uptick with other quick service restaurants and they are just they have blown up. I do seem to remember that they hired a bunch of execs from other QSRs, like from Mickey D's and some others that probably brought some, some quality control in place. But yeah, they are back in the driver's seat. And they and they got the public affairs game. They they, they quit saying and doing colossally stupid things outside the four walls and they got that game in place and, uh, and you think they're primed for the future because of delivery. Well, it seems like they're well poised, and there's, there's some some articles out this week to talk about how their customer and their product are both keen for delivery, and their the product travels well. Their core target customer is, is you know in that delivery mindset. So, in recognition of Chipotle making a uh, epic comeback, Chipotle is our lunch this week in the pot room. Delicious. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the little big burger that could. In the union that couldn't, Little Big Burger won their high-profile election this week, giving a big loss to the international workers of the world local that was trying to organize the chain. We'll discuss what this means to the broader labor movement and what other brands can learn from the tactics employed by the company to repel the union. And Coke and Pepsi have set a new course in the packaging conversation and parted ways with one of their key trade association allies. We'll take a look at why they went down this path, what impact it has on the issue, and what that means politically for restaurant and retail brands going forward. And the labor community is beginning to coalesce around a new boogeyman, private equity, and the effect it has on business models, workers' protections, and other issues. While focused now on the retail space, could restaurants be far behind? We'll kick that around. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard.
Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Carson's busily munching on his Chipotle burrito. A lot to get to, you guys. So this week, Franklin, you uh, your personal Super Bowl was held out in Oregon. Very the, exciting. The Little Big Burger Union election took place this week, the one we've been talking about for a number of weeks on this podcast. Franklin, I'll give you the floor. What happened? What's the headline? The headline is Chancellor Holdings um, Corporate won and the union was defeated. And the vote was, so there was 109 eligible voters and there was, not everyone voted. So it was 41 voted against the union, 29 voted yes for the union, 12 ballots are being challenged or contested. If By you, whom? By the company or the union? I think by the union. Unclear. Unclear. But yeah, you would expect by the union, if you add 12 to 29, you get 41, 41. which would equal in a tie. Tie goes to... to the employer. The employer. Right. So here's here's the other thing that's hanging out there. The union is, has been arguing and has filed unfair labor practice complaints that a number of union organizers in these locations have been fired over the weeks coming up to this. So theoretically, that would be a couple more votes. So here's how the process works from here. Right now, no union, done deal. But the union has until the end of the month, end of July, to contest the election. And if the NLRB finds that there are grounds for contesting the election, they can potentially have a redo election. Um, My guess is that the unions would not want to do a redo. In, in, in you, you listed it, 109 employees. That means over a quarter, almost a third of the entire employee base did not participate. So those are people that are not interested in a union. So if you if, if you assume that if a, if a third of the, the the staff did not participate, they're not in favor, right? And you add that, that means basically you know two thirds of the body collected is not in favor of a union. So. If the unions want to force that outcome again, I doubt they go down that road. Would would be my guess, but yeah. Well, in the calculus, they all have to run through is and and yet again, this is all the units in the state of Oregon versus the few locations where they had a lot of support, and so yeah, they may not want to run again. The deal is though is they cannot file another union election petition for a year. So there's a year cooling off period. So essentially, they'll have to wait a year, right, to, to redo this, or they can try to rerun the election now. So the company won. So what's the learning? What did the company do? What do other companies and bigger brands take away from this? What's the learning that they can incorporate in, some, in terms of their own thinking that Little Big Burger's leadership did here? Little Big Burger took the absolute polar opposite approach from Burgerville, which, as we know, the same union successfully organized, I think it's five locations. It was one location, then two locations, and three locations. And that's the approach that they were taking to Little Big Burger. They were running the exact same playbook. Burgerville by comparison, said, oh, yeah, come on in. We'll have a union election. We we don't care. Whatever the employees decide. Chancellor Holdings, Little Big Burger from the get-go was like, absolutely not. We're not in favor of this. And they very aggressively um, used every kind of tool in the toolbox to win this election, whereas Burgerville got caught in this middle ground where they were trying to give on some things and be and work with the activists, and then in others they weren't, and they still got characterized as being anti-union, but they were much more accommodating. 
Chancellor Holdings from the get-go was on the offense. I don't know who ran their campaign. Bullard Law has been quoted as being a part of this and representing them in front of the NLRB. Whoever ran their campaign ran a heck of a campaign. Just do If you just consider the fact that the company filed the election petition instead of the union, defining the bargaining unit and, and getting in a, on the front foot in a proactive, aggressive posture, that alone, when you look at the vote count, probably made the difference. And I'm sure there were a hundred other tactical decisions along the way. But that is a not oft used tactic. It, it was only used around 50 times last year. Obviously, it's never been used in the restaurant industry. And so to employ that tactic and others is just a whole different campaign when you contrast it against Burgerville. So if you want to win one of these elections, you need to be looking and, and you're in the quick service industry. And particularly if you're running up against the, the Wobblies in, in the Pacific Northwest, you need to look at the little Big Burger playbook and you want to be doing following that playbook rather than the Burgerville playbook. Franklin, one of the one of the things that stood out to me was the, the mail-in ballot process. The company had originally suggested that voting be held in a, a an old abandoned U-Haul warehouse, I think, and, and it'd be a you know, kind of an in-person voting. And it was an ambush election. It was essentially seven days. Make it real quick. And, yeah. and it was the union themselves that said, no, let's stretch this out and the union kind of reversed their tactics from the whole card check area where they wanted to have shorter election processes. And they said, no, let's stretch it out a little bit and let's do it by mail. And I think, you know, you, you put it through the lens of the old card check uh, conversation. The unions wanted the ability to look their fellow worker in the eye and there was that kind of unspoken potential intimidation. And, you know, you do it in the privacy of your own home, you kind of vote your heart more. And I think maybe, and it's just my, my humble opinion, uh, maybe that, that kind of backfired, maybe that actually played in the employer's favor. Yeah. And yet again, kind of speaking to Little Big Burger, Chancellor Holdings' general approach and how they, they came at this campaign, they threw them off their game. You know, they, this is not the election they wanted to have. This is not the bargaining unit. You want an election? Let's do it right now, right here. And, and they weren't prepared. And with all these restaurants, which you, you haven't organized yet, um, not just the one restaurant you want to cherry pick, right? The one bargaining unit you want to cherry pick. And so it totally threw them off their game. And clearly the result speaks to that. I got to say, though, even given all that, man, you count those other 12 votes and with that 29, whew, buddy, you had to be sweating bullets. Yeah. I mean, both Well, sides. but they didn't know that, you know, uh, uh, almost a quarter of the, the crew wouldn't vote at all at that time, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure they had a sense that it was probably going to be relatively close, probably closer closer than they had, they had hoped. So, again, the the learning for the learning if, if companies are paying attention and the t- one of the basically the tactics that the, the employer took in this space was they leaned into the curve. They went right at it and caught the union on their heels and they called for a short election cycle. Let's do it. Let's have this over with right now. The union is unprepared. So they, they came out aggressive and, you know, they, they rolled the dice. It's, it, you know, it's an aggressive strategy. They rolled the dice and it turned out the one. Yeah, and they decided that we're going to be, regardless of what we do, we're going to be characterized as anti-union. Essentially, Burgerville made another calculation that they could be, they could be a neutral arbiter, which is a big decision for anybody. But when you're based in Oregon, yeah, that's that's a that's a real big decision to make. Yeah, and so to your point, they leaned into it and they they ended up they ended up winning. So one one other uh, person is in the news this week who did not lean into it. And that would be Is he senior, from uh, Vermont, maybe? That would be senior Bernie Sanders. It's not Ben, it's not Jerry, but it's Bernie. It is Bernie. So Bernie let the UFCW in, your old friends from your Walmart days, Keith uh. 
and tear um, in my eye. And uh, they unionize the campaign staff. They've been in a little bit. Uh, they've been at odds here. Hashtag respect for the UFCW. They play hard and they play smart. And when they show up, when they show up on game day, they got the the black stuff under their eye. They got their game face on. They are ready for combat, man. And so Bernie, <laughs> Bernie's having a tough week. So I love the Bernie quote. We need a political revolution. Oh, that's the top of our show, isn't it? That is Bernie Sanders for our pod listeners, by the way. I love this quote from Bernie Sanders right here. Locked in a corporate campaign with the UFCW, Bernie Sanders is quoted, It does bother me that people are going outside of the process and going to the media. That is really not acceptable. It's really not what labor negotiations are about. And it's improper. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Go talk to Stop and Shop. Go talk McDonald's. to yeah. Go talk to any. Go talk to Disney. Go talk to any union employer that is in contract negotiations with their union, and see if they are, if they have an issue with the union going or their workers, their union members going and talking to the press unfavorably about them. Welcome to the game, Mr. Sanders. I love it. I love the hypocrisy. Hey, McDonald's. This this business model is good for you, but not really for me. You know, it's just it's just too much. But God, you union guys, you can't go talk bad about me in the press. That's 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 that is out of bounds, improper. I love it. I love it. Anyway, never gets old. So, gentlemen, this week some big news out of some major major American brands that are important supplier partners to the restaurant industry, both Coke and Pepsi, have made a decision in the sustainability space where they are dropping out of one of their key packaging trade associations, the Plastics Institute, and making some changes to their business model with regard to the the, the packaging and and getting rid of non-recyclable and non-combustible products in a very aggressive time frame, I believe, Franklin, until 2025. Kind of big news, and the the bigger picture is this choice that companies on a number of different issues are navigating, whether, you know, which arena to play in. Do they play in the arena of all right, we're going to adjust the way we do business and get out ahead of this, or are we going to stay in the arena in the, in the octagon of public policy and fight this to the bitter end? To the, right, right. to the end. And I think Coke and Pepsi, both seeing the writing on the wall and where this issue was going over the next five or ten years, said, we know how this ends. It's going to be bloody and painful. We're going to end up in the same place. Maybe we just get there on our own and what's best for our business. Carson, so tell me what's going on. You're our, you're our packaging expert in the firm. Tell me what's going on in this it, space. It, it's, it's kind of funny and ironic uh, that this news hits from Coke and Pepsi the same week. So a little personal story. I'm, I'm looking at my six-year-old's agenda for Ocean Camp, right? He's in Volusia County on the coast of Florida at a week-long Ocean Camp. He is six years old, and there was an hour session on microplastics and plastics in the ocean. Joe Franklin, he's six years old. Starting him young. That's exactly right. That is all you need to know about this fight. And this six is not. Olds, and this we is call not, that indoctrination. This is not Cape Cod. This is not the Berkeley, Volusia County, Florida, downtown a, Trumpland. Yeah, and it, so it tells you where this conversation has, has gotten to. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's progressed so far, and it has progressed so far with so many different sets. I mean, there is basically you know eighty percent of consumers have to be owned. In a, in a similar place there that they think that plastics pollution is a problem and maybe they don't get in the weeds but they know about the garbage patch and in their brain that embodies the challenge and that's why the conversation around straws and microplastics which is a teeny tiny little piece of this big complicated thing 
but that's what everyone envisions in their mind. That's what they knee-jerk go to, and that's why companies do not want to be in that game. And you know, we see that in a bunch of sectors, not just right here with plastic bottles. We obviously we're we're dealing with plastic bags, retail, straws, and whatever else. So you know, there, there's again going back to what I said earlier. There, there's a, this this process inside these these big brands, especially the ones that are consumer facing brands. Is you know, where do you stand and fight, and where do you where do you modify? And and at the end of the day, I think a lot of and tell me if you think I'm wrong. A lot of that internal decision making is driven by: Are we going to spend all our gold on fighting this? Are we going to spend that gold to go ahead and get ahead of this and never have to spend anything on it again, right? Are we going to we going to get ahead of this issue? We're going to adjust our business model, put resource towards that and get out of this issue or are we going to spend money just fighting to Right. And they look at this end? and they go, we're going to lose anyway, it's just a matter of time. So let's 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 change the business model now. And, and there's no there's no perfect model. I mean, you know, we talked about Disney last week, you know, they 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 went to $15 an hour long ago. They have almost robust tuition plans. They have an incredible workforce development, upskilling benefit program, and they still got attacked by Abigail Disney. So you're never completely out of the woods on this stuff, but at least Disney has a good story to tell, right? Well, and at least they're taking some things off the table. And that's, right, That they're they're trying to take some of the arguments of their detractors away. The detractors are always going to be at their doorstep. So what? So so for the restaurant industry, and Carson, what does this mean? Coke and Pepsi kind of getting out of this space, right? What what does this mean for the restaurant? How does it change the, the issue and the political positioning on the issue for the restaurant folks? Well, for, for restaurants and for other brands, kind of in that single use space and even for the plastics association right i think when you have your big players here moving in action like this it, pro- it provides some cover for everybody else and, and and that cover you know in theory at least allows other brands to make some changes to their business models more importantly i, I think what we're going to see here it's not just getting out or or, or or making decisions about you know we're going to buy this we're going to source this material a lot of these brands are involved in conversations associations about about recycling and modernizing our recycling infrastructure in cities and i think you know particularly on this issue we're going to see a more action and more intensity on that, right? Building out the, the, the recycling markets and being expanding what we're able to recycle. So the flip side of that is Coke and Pepsi give cover to people getting into this space and following them, but it also provides no cover for those that are left yeah. alone, you know, in city councils fighting, you know, a bottle issue or uh, a single use, you know, plastic straw issue. As more and more big brands say, you know what, I don't want to fight this anymore. I don't want to spend this money. I don't want this reputational cost associated with this issue. I'm going to go ahead and adjust and get ahead of this. That leaves more and more companies and brands on an, on an island by themselves fighting this. And one thing is, is different about kind of the Plastics Institute from say the National Restaurant Association or American Hotel and Lodging Association or some of these other trade associations, the Plastics Institute is really represents the resin guys. Plastics Industry Association. Industry Association. I think I'm the one that said that wrong first. But. So they represent the the manufacturers essentially, you know, Coke and Pepsi are participants, but unlike those other big trade associations, they are not really their members, direct members, are not really consumer facing. And so, in a way, like Pepsi and Coke are the consumer-facing portion of the plastics industry, even though they're not the manufacturer. In the, in the restaurant and retail space, we own everything, you know. And so, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. It's not a direct equal 
if McDonald's and Darden were to leave the National Restaurant Association, that would not be the equivalent of Coke and Pepsi leaving the Plastics Association. That would not be the equivalent of Marriott and Hilton leaving the American Hotel and Lodging Association. It's a lesser thing. It's a lesser thing. But it's still important because they are the public face of this issue. They're the only brands that people know. They, yeah, they carry the torch. And so if you start looking at kind of comparisons, and we were doing this today, if you, if you compare American Hotel and Lodging Association and how the hotels recently handled the panic button issue, where they saw this issue, and they're losing it. They were losing it everywhere, and unions were putting it in the ballot as a Trojan horse to embed collective bargaining agreement, essentially component parts, in into law. And they said, you know what, we're taking this off the table. We are taking this off the table as a weapon for the unions to come after us. And they all stood in stage with prominent, with folks from the Time's Up movement to say, we're getting ahead of this, we're adopting panic buttons. To your point. And just take the issue off the table. Yeah, the companies came to that decision and they pushed their trade association to that place where the industry has basically now taken the panic button issue off the table. And so here- Because the businesses were willing to adjust their model. And you know, I'm gonna make a lot of our colleagues and friends mad when I say this, but I really wish the restaurant folks would have done this with scheduling many years ago. This is, a, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty micro issue. We've had five or six years to get ahead of this thing. We keep getting pummeled on. We got pummeled, you know, as we'll talk later in the podcast, and the scorecard got pummeled in Chicago. We're going to get pummeled in the next town. And it's and, and it really comes down to a resistance by the industry to, by and large, adopt most of these standards. They just get it over right, with. Swallow, take the, take the you're going to be there anyway. Just swallow the pill and move on and talk about things you really want to talk about. And we just keep saying, nope, let's just go get pummeled in the next town. Let's, you know, let's take our show on the road. And it, it makes me kind of nuts. And if I had hair, I'd probably already lose it again. But it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing battle. It's no easy decision for companies. It's no easy decision for associations how to balance this this thread. But I think what it what it speaks to is the power of activists and you know, in this case, we're talking about no recycling, question. you know, and Greenpeace, environmental activists, but it could be labor activists, it could be all kinds of, to bypass, eventually bypass the legislative process and change corporate behavior. Right, force them to the table. Go, go, go outside the governmental and force corporate behavior. And I think the, the social media and the interaction that, the, the shrinking of the space between NGOs and average citizens and customers and consumers makes that more the norm than the exception and going forward more and more the norm and I, I think it's a way companies are going to have to understand how to process what's 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 real and what's not what's legit and what's not but how do you incorporate this stuff in your business model to get ahead of these things so from time to time on this podcast we have talked about the world of private equity and the influence that private equity has had uh, most specifically on, on, the, on the restaurant industry. We're going to talk a little bit about retail industry today, but you know, we, we've talked in the past about its impact on the restaurant industry and to the positive. You know, I've always made the case that you know, I think the, the entrance of private equity has made our industry much more financially sophisticated, much more strategic, much more you know, smarter about real estate investments and siting and efficiency of operations. It's, it's, it's been run not by former line cooks made CEO. It's now run by CFOs made CEO, right? And, but the flip side is you know, that streamlining, that cutting the fat has uh, diminished significantly our, our industry's you know, public affairs We've had to take a couple of haircuts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, we, we have, but we you know we have a we have a lot fewer dollars being allocated toward political outcomes, a lot fewer actual humans being uh, dedicated to political outcomes, and private equity has a big role in that as they've streamlined all these companies and gotten all the non-revenue producing quote-unquote, fat out the door. This is a little different. So private equity is now kind of starting to get into the political debate because the unions, some unions, are starting to target well, they private want, equity. And they want to drag them there, it looks like. Yeah. So, Franklin, walk us through what's going on there. Yeah, and the other dynamic I would say is it seems like we have less companies going public these days, particularly in the retail space, and more private equity money kind of sloshing around, helping finance some of these operations. So that's another kind of dynamic. And why do companies not are not going public as often now because it's a real pain in the rear. I mean, you got to make a lot of disclosures. You've got the CEO payroll, for instance, is just one little disclosure you have to make in our space that um, you don't have to make if you're a private company. So yeah, unions launched a a big report this week, 50-pager, and this is United for Respect. That's the UFCW front group, the old uh, our Walmart folks. Uh, my old friends. Center for Popular Democracy is, is one of the logos up there. Those are the folks leading the national charge and scheduling. And if you'll remember, that came out of the Retail Action Project in New York City, a retail-focused uh, group. So these are not small groups. These are not groups that have not had an impact when they've entered into different areas. And they their report, Pirate Equity, obviously a little, little play Pirate there. Equity. How Wall Street firms, how Wall Street firms are pillaging American retail. Now, this focuses on the retail sector and really dives into the stories like Toys R Us and others, Sears, Kmart, etc., and makes the case that private private equity firms went into these companies, hollowed them out, sold off all the assets, like real estate, for instance. They went away making a bundle in that process, and they left they left workers sitting in the curb with, with nothing in their pockets to show for it. Obviously, the story, if you look at Toys R Us and you look at you know Sears, is a little more complicated than that. But the point being is the unions want the private equity firms, the center of capital, if you will, to wear some of this. These are not consumer-facing companies. These are typically not the companies that are targeted in corporate campaigns. But from this report, it looks like there may be a pivot happening where unions increasingly are targeting some of these private equity firms, particularly those that may have holdings, three or four different companies that are becoming union targets. Now we may see some efforts to tar and feather the, these companies. And in fact, they're proposing some some legislative options to kind of go after these companies and, and tie them up in what they can do and can't do and make them make additional disclosures. And so at the it, state level, there's probably some some opportunity to run with that. And, and the usual suspect, you know, that the, the 10 blues, you know, states federally, obviously, that'll never happen. I, I think it's a it's a tough it's, it's an interesting space. And it, and it goes along this compendium that, you know, we were going to make Walmart the face of this wage inequality issue and they were going to make McDonald's the face of it. They were going to make fast food and then we're going to pick on the franchise business model and they just kind of pick another horse on that merry-go-round. Now it's private equity. They're, they're Wall Street. Go, well, you know, going after. And so, but I think it's a harder reach. The average American doesn't know what private equity is. Um, they don't know the names of these firms. I remember the, the Democrats trying to make political hay out of Bain Capital. 
And that, you know, Mitt Romney was with Bain Capital. And I bet you nine out of 10 Americans have no idea what Bain Capital is even after that process. So it's it's a one-off, it's a reach, but it is interesting. And maybe it has the effect of getting the attention of some of these private equity firms to invest in this space and start advocating in their defense, which they haven't previously done. So who knows? The one thing that, that, that strikes me, why, why, Franklin, do you think it's the UFCW? Well, this is clearly retail-focused right now. And but they're the food and commercial workers. You know, why, isn't it, why isn't it some of the other unions? You know, they've been focused on the grocery store world. I mean, they're, they're very, well refi- you know, very well resourced, and they are very aggressive and sophisticated in what they do. I mean, you know, hashtag respect to the UFCW. But I find it... I think that's it, literally their hashtag. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> United for respect. I mean, retail is their bailiwick. Center for Popular Democracy came out of the Retail Action Project. Retails are bailiwick. I think that's why it's focused on retail. Obviously, they want to organize and unionize the retail industry, and this is another kind of tool they're trying to put in their toolbox. I don't think it's there yet. They're trying to build it out. But, you know, relative to this conversation, we got a lot of private equity money sloshing around the restaurant industry. So if, and I think this this is why we're flagging it, because if this line of attack demonstrates success in the retail sector, guess what? We're going to see it in the restaurant sector. Right. And I, I don't know, to your point, I don't know that this is proven effective yet, but it looks like they're committing, at least in the near term, to try to make this work in this space. You know, the AFL-CIO executive pay report on, on CEO compensation, they've been doing that thing for like 15 years. And just now have we got this SEC rule in effect where we have disclosures on CEO pay. And just now is that thing, is that starting to really have some effect and impact? And you know, I don't think it's I don't think any companies are unionizing tomorrow because of the CEO pay disclosure, but it, it adds another bullet and talking point in their corporate campaigns. And this is just another tool that's out there that may prove useful in the future. And I, and I do think they're 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 politically the unions are politically organized enough that they can go to California and New York and get legislation through the process that kind of harasses these guys. Yeah. in those states and you do and that get AGs involved and get AGs involved and so there there is a formula that they don't have to run some massive bill through Congress they'll avoid Congress like they always do go get a pick off a couple states go pick off a couple AGs and then those firms have a problem on their hand so it's not a leap it's not a leap so it's it's a good issue to flag and and you know folks need to kind of watch and we'll be watching for them It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. As always, we start with wages, but instead of going to the D.C. bubble, we're staying in our own little bubble here in Florida. Mm-hmm. Franklin, what happened? Yeah, so the $15 an hour minimum wage measure here is basically, they have the signatures, expect this thing is going to the ballot, and I think there's a good chance it's going to pass. So, I mean, we'll keep updating you as there's little developments along the way, but as we've known for a while, because John Morgan, the Orlando trial attorney who's been doing this initiative, has done others before. Just did the medical marijuana initiative. That took two times and five or six years, but he got it done. You know, he knows how to do it. So that's they've it. got about half the signatures they needed verified, but they got much more than they need in the pipeline waiting to be verified. So they, they crossed a million signature threshold this week. They, and need, so, th- they need three quarters of a million. They, they are over a million signatures. Probably all the exact same people that signed the medical marijuana initiative, what it was, two years ago. So 
uh, yeah, this thing's going to the ballot, I think we can safely assume. Uh, speaking of the ballot, going across the country, the home of or Idaho. A hotbed of labor activism. A potato um, bed. Yeah, Idaho. So activists there, it's... Or a hot potato. I keep going all day. Yeah, please don't. Okay. Um, so we... Uh, a little lower signature threshold in Florida, which is three quarters of a million, is 55,000 in Idaho. It is spread out over, I think, like 18 legislative districts, so that is a little bit challenging. But anyway, activists there have, have uh, collected 5,000 of their 55,000 needed. They have till the spring, so, you know, they're on their way. I think they've got a good chance of getting it on the ballot. We'll keep you updated. That would eliminate the tip credit as well as training wage and raise it to $12 an hour. One thing that jumps out at me about the Idaho thing is the elimination of the tip wage. And if you look at the, I think there's seven states um, that do not have a tip credit, and the bulk of them are out in that western area. So the people out there are used to a world where there's no tip credit. And so they're already kind of as I say, they're used to it. So to me, it's it's particularly vulnerable uh, that, that Idaho could become the eighth state to do that. So just something to watch. And Franklin, has any industry spent more time talking about a town smaller than Emeryville, California? It was like the first, wasn't it the first town to go to 15 way back when, back in the day? Like, I don't, I think Seattle beat it to 15. Okay. But, um, God, since we talk about Emeryville, so what are we talking? Why, why? But not to be outdone, they zoom past. Um, so Emeryville is the highest minimum wage in the country. It, it's 1630. The city was concerned that the small number of restaurants in the small Bay Area city would go out of business. So they froze the minimum wage to $15 an hour for restaurants in the spring. The Restaurant Opportunity Center... For, for, for restaurants that had fewer than 55 employees. Right. It was allowed to go higher for bigger operations. Which is a lot of restaurants, I would say. But yeah. But yeah so, um, and the Restaurant Opportunity Center didn't like that. They went out and collected signatures in a petition that forced the city council to reconsider that, or it would go to the ballot for voters and the city council blinked. They caved like a house of cards. Yeah, it's kind of pathetic, actually. Um, and so and now those smaller restaurants have to comply with that $15 wage, correct? Yeah, and there's a lot of concern that they're going to go out of business. And honestly, for our national conversation, that could probably be the best thing that could happen. But uh, if if that doesn't help you a lot, if you're a small business in Emeryville trying to trying to scrape by selling $16 smoothies, <laughs> Um, and Orange Julius. Yeah. So, speaking of $16 an hour and $15 an hour, some folks in Washington are up in the game to start a conversation about $20 an hour. What happened there? Not to be outdone. And this is another restaurant opportunity center uh, uh, sighting, if you will. At one of their One Fair Wage events, they had Rep Talib, who is part of the squad. She is one of the freshmen congressman who's been getting a lot of ink as kind of a progressive leader. She's calling for $20 an hour and, of course, the elimination of the tip credit. So maybe we have a new a new marker. I will say this, too, just tracking back to Emeryville. There was a Wall Street Journal. I don't know where it appeared, but it looked like a cover story, like at least a business section cover story on Emeryville this week. I mean, it was, it was a big, big layout on Emeryville. So you know these little been, been, these little, little case count. studies yeah, these little been, case studies exactly drive what, a lot of the conversation exactly what has been a case study so let's pivot to paid leave things are getting heated down the deep in the heart of texas they are so it looks like well san antonio and dallas the paid leave mandates are now going to be challenged in court 
Um, and we remember Austin's was uh, stayed by the courts. They found that it was unconstitutional. And I think it's still progressing through the courts. But yeah, I, I think, you know, knock on wood, you know, both of these are going to get stayed in Dallas and in San Antonio, but it's going to take a little while for that process to play out. Meanwhile, San Antonio has already decided they're going to push back the compliance date, the effective date to December 1 to let the process play out. I do think that in both Dallas and San Antonio, it's kind of like the dog that caught the car. They, um, I think both city councils under pressure from activists pass these mandates thinking that they were, there's no way they're going to go into effect. The state would preempt or the courts, the Austin precedent would stand. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh crap, we have done nothing to prepare for this. And none of the businesses had, no one, you know, everyone thought these were going away. And so I think it's kind of a bailout for them. I think probably some people in those city, city halls are a little bit relieved that they don't have to figure out how to do this by August 1. So Never a dull moment. But people that know how to do paid leave really well are the folks out in Oregon and that bill that established 12 weeks of paid family leave uh, that we've been talking about for a while was finally signed by the governor. We, we, it was a pro forma. We knew that was going to happen, but it's finally on the books. So that's done a deal. Done, done deal. Right uh, just south of Oregon in California, this dynamics case have been following forever with the gig economy. A little bit of activity this week in the uh, court of law. I like to pronounce it Dynamex, but there is some debate as to what is the correct pronunciation. I think we've had that debate. The, the lawyer that was on that talked yep. about it called it Dynamics. He did. Yeah. He did. So I'm tired of talking about this. I really am. No one's forcing you. Uh, I mean, it, it, so essentially what's happened now is a federal appeals court that gave that decision, handed down that decision, and made it retroactive is now withdrawing that decision that it applies retroactively and is handing it to the state Supreme Court to make that determination or not. So we're in this crazy no man's land of not knowing how to comply or what's, you know, and meanwhile, the state legislature is trying to enshrine this uh, decision that was made by the federal court now pulled back. They're trying to enshrine it in law. So, man, just another day in California. Nobody knows what's up from down. Speaking of not knowing what's up from down, we kind of do know what's down. Uh, The city of Chicago, uh, reconciled the long pending scheduling conversation. Didn't go so well. So they borrowed pieces and parts from existing ordinances around the country. And I think there were some noti- noticeable omissions. You know, they're still going through the rulemaking process. So some of this still gets sorted out, but there's some challenges with it. A, a lot of, I think, chains have some issues with it because it essentially only applies to a small segment of the restaurant industry. Hotels basically exempting themselves out and if you're not part of a national chain, you're basically exempted. For, you know, yeah, if you're a local independent that has, I don't know, I can't remember what the threshold is, like 30 restaurants or something. Yeah, so 250 employees, fewer than 30 global locations. So if you have 29 locations then in Chicago, right, then, then you're exempted. So anyway, pretty standard stuff otherwise. 10 days advance notice, you can't change it, you know, within that time period without having to pay penalty pay, um, which is one hour, and then within 24 hours, you know, if you change it, you you have a higher rate. So that's the thrust of it. It does not prevent workers from kind of shift swapping. There is no voluntary standby list specifically written out in the legislation like, like is in place in Oregon. Essentially, uh, people are assuming there's a de, de facto voluntary standby list 
in that you can shift swap. But the problem is those shift swaps have to be documented. So essentially you have to, you know, it's a huge record keeping requirement every time you swap a shift or every time you bring someone in and they agree to come in, essentially a de facto voluntary standby list that has to be documented and approved by the worker and the manager. And so, you know, there's a record keeping issue here that's probably a little more intensive than in some other jurisdictions. But this, this, this was happening um, one shape or another. And, you know, there were some concessions that were built into this and some restaurants are happy, some employers are happy, some are not. And there's some issues that hopefully will be resolved in the rulemaking process. If you haven't been paying attention to this and it's applicable to you, you need to pay attention during the rulemaking process because that's going to be your last opportunity to work out any kinks. That's a disappointing part. Not, you know, we knew we were going to lose. That you know that, that we don't we don't have much of a, a you know political sway in Chicago. But I am disappointed that you know that the the industry was kind of diced and spliced, big versus small, chain versus independent. That's a bad bad precedent for other jurisdictions on the issue and 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 on other issues as well, even in this jurisdiction. And we can't have our own industry picking winners and losers within our industry. That is that is not smart politics. Uh, and that is not a way to go about doing business. But uh, so it's a lot disappointing on a lot of fronts. Again, we don't have a national strategy on scheduling. We don't have cohesion within the, the, the leading companies on scheduling. And we, we just, we, we don't have our act together. We're gonna continue and we're gonna go on the next town and lose there too. So a uh, little, little disappointing outcome there. Franklin, Texas. Texas. The Chick-fil-A bill that Chick-fil-A, I think, had nothing to do with. Yeah, the governor signed into law the quote-unquote Save Chick-fil-A Act, which, yeah, essentially what it says is San Antonio had barred Chick-fil-A from winning a contract to— um, In the airport. Yeah, be in the airport due to Chick-fil-A's stance and social issues. That was their reasoning. And so this protects companies, you know, that make decisions based on religious beliefs. And, you know, if you're Chick-fil-A, I'm not sure you welcome your brand being hijacked for what will be viewed by the LGBT community, I suspect, as an anti-LGBT bill. And so, you know, unwittingly, unknowingly, and Chick-fil-A got their brand kind of dragged into this and they've become the namesake of this quote-unquote religious freedom bill. That's generally not where brands want to position themselves. Um, so anyway, that passed. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see this pop up in other states. And lastly, going back to the presidential campaign, uh, you know, no friend in the industry, Mayor New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, made some announcements this week in terms of his political campaign Talked about a lot of things important in the industry. You know, we watch these Democrat presidential candidates and they're bouncing around and they're all positioning for um, to be take the progressive mantle. And that obviously pushes the Democrat Party to the to the left, at least in the labor policy issues. And so Bill de Blasio basically put together a workers bill of rights where he summarized all the crazy things New York City has done. <laughs> um, including, you know, great big book of crazy. Yeah, exactly. Paid time off, you know, the vacation policy they have, the just cause firing policy. I don't know if the fast food deduction thing was in there or not, but yet again, I don't know if the joint employer thing was in there either. But yeah, so he put it all together in a big book of crazy and is now uh, touting it around. And, you know, this, this, this type of thing threatens to eventually work itself into, into the kind of the middle ground, the mainstream of, of Democrat politics and that's where, something to watch out for. Where, where he's not in the middle ground is the polling of Democratic candidates. He is right at the bottom. And uh, after this land, this bombshell announcement, he remains uh, right at the bottom. 
Yeah. Um, so it was kind of perfunctory, but yeah. uh, just interesting. The point being, once again, core, our core business model issues are at the heart of the Democratic primary contest. So that, that's the learning there. So another interesting week. The good news is that Congress, it appears, uh, is poised to take their annual August recess. So to the extent that uh, the hijinks in D.C. will settle down for the month of August a little bit, we can look forward to that. And yeah. The beat will still go on. We've still got a handful of states in session. I think eight states are still technically in session. So we'll report next week. Well, another week, interesting week. Heat spell, heat wave across the country. Mueller on the hot seat. Bernie Sanders on the hot seat. Carson, what do you do to beat the heat? Jump in the pool. That must be an epic seismic title event. Shamu. <laughs> I mean, Shamu jumping through hoops. Is, is, is the rest of the family, do they have the poncho zone in the front row? The splash zone. That's right. You've ne- you've never seen my uh, my athletic diving ability. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to take a little Alon field trip Friday afternoon and watch you uh, you uh, pull off some dives. If any of our pod listeners want to come to Orlando and watch Carson dive into the pool, it's 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 worth the trip. Franklin, are you gonna have a good weekend this weekend? <laughs> Not as good as Carson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see y'all next week.